welcome to the exciting world of the movies. Hello, retro movie lovers, and welcome back to the movie graveyard. I'm so excited because joining me for his uh, first foray into the graveyard of 2020, I haven't talked to this gentleman since 2019, it's been that long. The one, the only, actually one of the very earliest grave diggers here on the movie graveyard, Trev 3K. Trev, what's going on, man? How's it going, Goat? The, the, the truth is that we're not even that far into 2020, so it just feels like we're like 18 years into 2020. Oh, That's it like does. We're, we're like living like a dog years version yeah. of 2020. <laughs> It is some shit, but either way, we won't we won't you know bog you fellas down with that. Um, most of you will probably be listening to this in five years anyway when this whole thing is passed, and we won't ever think about it again. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, for now we're rolling with the classic movies. Uh, Trev hit me up, you know, one of the titles he suggested. I was like, oh, I'm all about that because this is one of my favorite movies from my youth and even my adulthood because I've never stopped watching this movie since it very first came out. Obviously, we're talking about the one, the only New Line Cinema classic, The Hidden. So we'll go ahead and get it rolling. Uh, Trev's rolling off the DVD. I'm rolling off the Blu-ray. They both seem to have the same, like, you know, format, time markers, whatever. We have it paused at the 10-second mark on the disc. Uh, That's right after the New Line Cinema film logo. And when you hit play, uh, you know, the opening title should start up. So are you ready with remote and hand, Trev? I am indeed. Okay, I'm going to say one, two, three, go. When I say go, let's hit play on the remote. All right, everybody. One, two, three, go. All right, we're rolling. Our discs are spinning. And I just want to clarify, I'm not just watching a DVD. I'm watching a snapper case DVD, so you know it's real special. As far as I'm concerned, that's kind of the best kind of uh, DVD case because it's like... You know, the, the, the ones that came later, the plastic ones, that's like too new. You want to know you're rolling with pure vintage 1998 material when you roll out a DVD <laughs> in 2020, I feel. So here we have the, uh, I have to say a lot of movies do like the uh, the opening, uh, you know, surveillance camera, security footage shit. And it always looks fake. This is like the only movie I can think of offhand where it actually looks like a legit security camera. Like... The video is not like too annoying yeah. on your eyes to watch, but it's it's clearly grainy and video-ish. Yeah, and then the like the green title is offset against it really well too. Yeah, big time. And then the the actual title of the movie when that came up, like you don't even really know what it is at the like why because you don't know that character yet. But like inside the titles was one of those picture-in-picture type things they used to do back in the day, and it was a a quick uh, slow motion glimpse of Kyle McLaughlin. Hmm. I kind of miss that as like a as like a title treatment, right? The footage inside the letters. Oh yeah, like especially if it's like, like that was just a picture of a guy. But like sometimes when it's like a really gruesome or gory <laughs> image inside the letters, I love that. Yeah. So here, here we have you know we're watching like you don't really know who to watch at the beginning uh, of this tape, and then this guy in a trench coat just pulls out a shotgun and starts shooting people. And I gotta say, like, you would see this type of sequence, like the security cam shit, like, done now just to save money, but it's actually really effective, like, just this, like, one camera shot thing. He, he, like, like It is, and then this moment where he comes to the camera and smiles is, like, actually pretty chilling, you know? It is. It's not even, like, shitty horror movie chilling. It, it like, it, it, it blurs that line of, like, uncanny reality. Mm-hmm. Then we cut to, obviously, you know, the 35mm film. This is our- I believe I might be wrong about this, but just by the way it looks, is this the same bank that they come out of in Heat? 
and you have know, like the shootout. You know, I didn't think about that, but it could be. I was I was about to say I th- I think it's the same bank that uh, is featured in some uh, wide shots in uh, Night of the Comet, but I could be wrong about that. But it, it looks like the same one in downtown LA that Big Wells Fargo down there. Yeah. So we have this guy he just robbed the bank. Now he's gonna peel off in a Ferrari, and like I have to say, like I want to give this uh, movie props where it deserves it. some good extras and like. You know, I'm sure this is a fairly low-budget movie. Like, I don't know really how they, like, were able to stop traffic like this, you know, to get this good enough. Yeah, you know? shut down. I was I was thinking that the other night, too, when I rewatched it. Just, like, it's a great opening, right? Because uh, you set a sense of big scale right away that right. not all of the rest of the movie has. But if you can, like, trick your audience into thinking a movie's big in the first five minutes, then they'll go right. with you pretty far. You know, they'll, they'll stick with you. And it's like a real trope now to, to start any type of science fiction, horror, action, anything out with, with like, a scene. Like, you know, like, before we bore you with the story type thing, let's just get you into some kind of quick scare, some kind of quick action scene. And you're right, this is, this is actually probably most likely, like, you don't think about it, but, like, this is definitely the biggest budget, like, action scene in the film. But, like, it yeah. kind of works because it draws you in, but at the same time, like... It works because the rest of the movie is more focused on, like, you know, the the characters and the story. So it, it kind of a weird way works, like you said, opening it up with this large scale. Well, it also works because the thing that's great about this, too, and, like, I, I, you know, the, the particular appeal of it is that if you go into this movie not knowing what it is, there's nothing about the scene that tells you what genre this movie is or anything. You know, if you, you expect to see an action movie start with a scene like this. But this takes a bit to even get to any sci-fi elements. And so at this point, we're still just in kind of, like... A fun crime caper right right and this is one of those movies like probably like five seven ten years ago i started seeing clips of this show up as like you know like almost like a viral meme of like oh this is how crazy 80s movies were you know what i mean but it's like a great mm-hmm. chase through macarthur park and everything um you know the cop cars versus a ferrari this ferrari's getting banged up and uh i know jack shoulder and i'm really glad he did because like the Ferrari like lent so much uh, production value to this movie because originally the producers wanted to cheap out and I think get just get like a Corvette or something and like he really mm-hmm. fought to get a Ferrari. This is great. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost like a Roger Corman death race type moment where he runs yeah. over the guy in the wheelchair. Yeah, and we should point out. Um, so I'm sure probably a lot of people have come to this movie over the years because primarily because of Kyle MacLachlan being the star. Um, but if that's the case for Twin Peaks fans who may come for that, the the guy driving the car, the the criminal that we're following is Chris Mulkey, who is also from Twin Peaks, played uh, Hank Jennings. So they never interact in this film, but still a little bit of a Twin Peaks, uh, you know, not even a reunion because this is before Twin Peaks. But I know. And like, it's kind of crazy. Like, I don't know how, how you feel with this, but to me, like Mulkey, Chris Mulkey was like the prototype Brian Cranston. When Brian Cranston started popping up and stuff, I was like, man, that guy reminds me of Chris Mulkey. <laughs> It was weird. It could have been. Now, this is this is great because the other night when I was watching it, I hadn't seen it in a long time. And I was like, oh, my God, you never see, like, the car driving through a plate, like, a glass plate that people are carrying unless it's, like, a parody anymore. Right. And for a moment, I couldn't believe they are going to just do it unironically. But it goes the extra distance where he doesn't touch the plate, but he completely bowls over the one guy on the side. Yeah, like he's so I like that they added that little extra beat to it. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, this wasn't the first movie to do the glass plate bit. I'm sure that's probably been around forever and ever. But I mean, this mm-hmm. was a while ago, so I wonder how much of a cliche it really even was back then. You know? Yeah. Because I mean, th- this movie does have a little bit of a sense of humor, but it's really not that tongue in cheek oh, yeah. overall. 
I think it's it's the perfect kind of sense of humor, right? Where it knows the concept is goofy and it just it plays the concept straight, knowing that it's going to be funny anyways, right? To a certain degree. Right. Now here we have uh, the, uh, Chris Mulkey driving the Ferrari. Now it's all shot up, blood, blood splatter. Well, I guess should say more crashed up. I don't think they've really shot it up yet. But he's running into a police blockade of just nonstop cop cars. And I like I think just like. I think this movie, in all honesty, is like a legit masterpiece. Masterpiece, like it has a true B movie concept. But like, if you look at like the editing, everything, the cinematography and editing, like everything really holds up in this movie. And I think this is like a great, uh, you know, little minute of tension as he's going towards the the uh, you know police blockade, and we get introduced to all you know pretty much like most of the main cops here: uh, Michael Nury. Um, Ed O'Ross, um, Richard, Brooks. Richard Brooks, yeah, very early cameo from, uh, I would say cameo, but early supporting role from Richard Brooks. Yeah. And Ed, O'Ro- Ed O'Ross, of course, uh, you know, a face in a lot of like 80s and early 90s films. So he's very recognized. That's the thing I was thinking too, watching this is like, you and I have obviously watched a lot of 80s movies for this podcast. And I can't, I, I, I'm hard pressed to think of another one that's as full of kind of character actor faces as mm-hmm. this one is. This one is really populated by a lot of, uh, oh, look, it's that guy, you know. Yeah, yeah, we got so many uh, cameos to point out along the way as this film goes on. Yeah, like like he gets out of the car all shot a bunch of times, still trying to like get away with the money, but he just laughs and they shoot and they blow up the car. Great car explosion, great stunt. Mm-hmm. Although I think that's a little odd moment where he's just standing there and they all shoot, but for somehow all three of them miss him, but they hit the car right behind him instead. (laughs) (laughs) The the LAPD hires uh, from the same place that gets the uh, stormtroopers for their marksmen, I guess. Yeah, it's like it's like you're uh, you know you're you're in a good spot if you're Mulkey because you're not going to take too many more bullet hits, but at the same time you don't want to be standing Mm -hmm. in front of a you know highly explosive, probably leaky gasoline car. Yeah. So, like, one little uh, second that happened a couple minutes ago was uh, we introduced Michael Nury. He was talking to uh, Chris Mulkey's neighbor, and, like, uh, you know, the, like they were like kind of setting up the pattern that, you know, these ordinary citizens are going on these, like, wild crime sprees, and, like, they don't know why. And, like, I think that was a great hook. Um, there's a lot of mm-hmm. parallels. Like, as much as this movie is not like The Terminator, there's a lot of parallels, like, to how it is and i don't know how intentional that was or wasn't at the time but like i love it like to me it like totally scratches like the kind of terminator itch and uh you know the idea of the terminator being that some random faceless person could like walk up to you and you know shoot you for you know no reason you know for something you haven't even done yet whereas like this movie is kind of like some random faceless like um you know, citizen might be on a crime spree and like you just might get caught up in it because there's a you know compared to especially like movies now trev there is a lot of collateral damage victims in this film yeah now here we have another uh cameo uh we see that uh he's the chief i think is either like the police no like the lieutenant for the department or whatever um is uh of course clue gulliger yeah and it's kind of funny yeah. too because like clue was like definitely you know rolling with the new line cinema at this point uh, you know, just coming off um, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Yeah, well, which, of course, was also directed by Jack Shoulder. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing they just really got along, you know. And include, like, it really is a cameo. Because, like, 
that little tiny scene there where he was talking to the to the lieutenant and then like the um, like the one scene later he cut he like literally walks into kind of like a scene and walks out but yeah for the most part like that's really all you get that that i'm thinking off the top of my head from clue gulliger and oh, the, guy, man. the guy i was just gonna say the guy that plays the lieutenant is very kind of odd but he's very memorable kind of mm-hmm. heavy set guy it's pretty crazy now to watch this and just how baby-faced Kyle McLaughlin is. Yeah. And it's funny because he's, I mean, playing an FBI agent in this. Of course, him, you know, we'll get to who he really is later. But, um, of course, a couple of years after this, he would play his most famous character, another FBI agent. But he really aged up a lot. And that was like two or three years right. to where he looks fairly age-appropriate in Twin Peaks. And here, he just looks too young to be an FBI agent. <laughs> yeah. And it just... Um... I'm I'm just wondering how much of it. I, I'm sure probably 100 percent of the casting was just, you know, they were able to get him coming straight off of you know kind of the critical success of Blue Velvet. But you got to think yeah. like for the most part, um, I guess he was in Dune before that too. But Blue Velvet was really where people actually start to really like him and his because he he. I don't know what to say about Kyle MacLachlan's acting. I like him. I'm a huge fan of him, but um. He has like a different style where like I enjoy him in a lot of shit, but then when you read the reviews, a lot of times he gets slammed. Like he got slammed a yeah, lot. Yeah, I feel like it's. All... I was just gonna say he got slammed a lot, particularly for Dune and uh, Showgirls, and I thought he was perfectly fine in both those movies. So I mean, he was pretty green in Dune, but I don't know if it was like overly distressed. I mean, that's not the, that movie's problem, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it took. I think he's one of those actors who it took a long time for people to kind of get on his wavelength because I, I think now you see a lot of like Kyle MacLachlan appreciation. It feels like it just took people time to like catch up to him. Before I bailed on the show, he was my favorite thing about Agents of Shield. <laughs> <laughs> he was pretty great. Like that's like yeah, like I remember he was he totally got like just went over the top and had a uh, yeah. you know went full Nicholas Cage in that performance. But I think also people really got into him and like when he started to get to show more of his comedic side and things like uh, Portlandia and How I Met Your Mother. And then just, of course, the range he had in the the latest version of Twin Peaks. So I'm glad he's enjoying like a late career resurgence. Yeah, he definitely deserves it. And um, I liked a lot of the stuff that they had in the cop station with the with the with Richard Brooks and O'Neill. Just quick shots of them like shooting, you know, paper balls like basketballs in the basket. And then how mm-hmm. uh, Michael Nury, who plays a uh, Sergeant Beck or whatever he is, uh, go or Detective Beck, I should say, goes and puts the paperwork on the nerdy guys. That's like there's a lot of like little moments that you don't see in movies now that build the camaraderie in like a very short amount of time between the cops. Yeah. Okay, here's the money shot, Trev. What do you think yeah. of this? <laughs> it's pretty great. I mean, it's like they're actually good practical effects. Like the other thing that's amazing about it is we've seen this done in a lot of films. Mm-hmm. And I think very often, um, you know, when an alien being is impenetrating someone, it's usually like a very little thing. And I love how horrifying this one is and just the size of it. Yeah, like the idea of huge. having that go into your throat. It's just, it's just this gigantic thing. And the little like gooey, clear tendrils that come out of the throat last yeah. that's the great like coup de gras to that yeah so basically mulky he's all burned up at this point from the explosion his body's dying so he's in a coma in the hospital they don't they think he's going to die within a few hours so he gets up and transfers this giant alien i'd say it's about the size of a house cat wouldn't you say true yeah yeah about that yeah it comes out of his throat two two great like you know the way they mix the real actors with the dummies of the giant you know alien thing going down and throat it's yeah it's great like i just i remember being so impressed by that as a kid i mean i'm still impressed like i look forward to that scene every time 
I totally forget this one doctor, the older guy in the middle, but um, I looked up his name the other night, and I didn't recognize his name, but I recognize this guy as a character actor a lot, too. I remember on the commentary, Jack Shoulder thought the uh, two extras in that scene, the I guess the, the, one, the young... Uh, black doctor and the nurse he thought they were really bad but I, I didn't think they were that bad like I even rewatched it closely the other night and I didn't think it was bad at all mm-hmm. but it, but like yeah the scene where they're trying to resuscitate him it, I don't know there's like a couple little scenes every now and then like this movie like it dips from like it's sometimes feeling like an A-list picture to being a B-list picture but I kind of like yeah. that about it yeah and actually I think it's often at its best when it's in the B movie territory yeah Man, this is good. Like, I'm just looking at this place and thinking how cool like a record store this looks like. Yeah, and like I, I got uh, curious about it. Um, you, you can't see it too good here, but later on when they pull up, I looked it up. This is actually a real record store chain that uh, it started in New York, but I guess this was a LA location. It's called. It's actually called Bleaker Bob's uh, Records. Mm-hmm. It, it was um, like a New York City staple just until I think two years ago finally closed down when the the owner Bleaker Bob. That wasn't his real name. His real name was something else, but uh, he passed away, I guess. Now, we should talk about this performance because it's not like me. This is going to sound silly to say considering he doesn't do much, I suppose. But so this actor is named William Boyett playing the new host of The Alien. And it's actually one of my favorite performances in the movie. Yeah. And partly that might just be that the, I think Jack Shoulder was really good at casting faces, I think, because there's, there's something about this guy that the movie doesn't ask much of him other than to have this kind of like blank look on his face and then go on this you know murderous spree that you wouldn't expect from an, an old looking you know middle-aged guy yeah but like the the kind of little grins he gets and the pure joy he gets and the the you know the dichotomy of that actually works really well i agree Malky was kind of my favorite of the uh the uh the alien actors but uh he but this one guy actually might be the best because i think maybe screen wise time he might be the actor who portrays the alien the longest in the film like yeah he's in it for yeah i think people tend to remember claudia christian the most for other obvious reasons (laughs) yeah but yeah he's great and and the what's kind of great too like again just more genius writing yeah jonathan p miller is this old guy's name but some of the genius writing was he's a guy who he was in the hospital. He just had a massive uh, coronary, I believe. And he also has severe gastrointestinal issues. So, like, this body is, like, really, like, half dead already that the alien gets into. And, and as we go along, we'll kind of point out some of the cool shit that happens because of it. Some gross stuff, mm-hmm. too. But, uh, again, I just thought it was, you know, a good little bit of writing or whatever. Like, you really don't see that. You know, there, like you said, there's been, like, a lot of these... Um, bad guy jumping body movies sometimes it's a alien sometimes it's like a horror thing like uh uh, jason goes to hell sometimes it's like a spiritual demon thing um like uh what was that movie fallen with denzel washington but i think this movie actually i unless there's some other movie i'm just not thinking of i think this movie does the villain jumping bodies whole thing the best that i can think of better than jason goes to hell that's a joke (laughs) yeah I think everything does everything better than Jason. Although, if, uh, Cre- although if uh, Kyle McLaughlin's character could team up with Creighton Duke from Jason oh, Goes yeah. to Hell, you might have one hell of a movie. Creighton, like, I remember when I saw Jason Goes to Hell, that was also another New Line film, pretty sure. Uh, mm-hmm. And Creighton Duke was, like, the only thing I really kind of liked about that movie. Like, Yeah. No, that's the thing. is like, Creighton Duke is great, and he's just yeah. stuck in a terrible movie. Yeah. 
And I like this movie kind of takes its time to get rolling here. Like, the cops are really, you know, two steps behind. And uh, like we're saying, Kyle McLaughlin, he, he tried to come in and uh, introduce himself a couple times, actually, to Michael Nury, Agent Beck, or, or Detective Beck. And um, he just gets blown off. And it's like finally, you know, because McLaughlin kind of like, like once, it'll take a second here, but like once they realized Jonathan P. Miller was the guy, the old guy who like did this record store thing, it's like, okay, finally uh, uh, Michael Nury gives him some credit. You know, maybe this guy knows what he's talking about. Because uh, Kyle McLaughlin is the agent, he 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 kind of has some strange like I wouldn't say overly bizarre, but he's very like uh, expressionless and uh, he's very straightforward, but he's not giving much information at all. And I know the director Jack Shoulder had some problems with Michael Murray, which I don't know why, because mm-hmm. supposedly from one thing I read that. Uh, Michael Nury and uh, McLaughlin only agreed to do the film once the, you know they agreed that they would work together. But I guess Nury wanted to be a like leading man or something, so he had all kinds of like real, real bizarre rules where he always had to like be walking in front of people and shit. And I mean, he comes off as awesome in this movie. The movie's he's great. Like him, even him and McLaughlin got great chemistry. So I mean, I can't yeah. knock the guy for the performance. He gives an awesome leading man performance, but I'm kind of surprised that he <laughs> apparently was such a dick while making the movie. I'm kind of not surprised because I, I was thinking that like so because like in this and I was gonna I was actually gonna say if you think you could sit down with Michael Nury today and ask him what's the high point of your career I, I imagine he'd have he's either gonna say either this or Flashdance right yeah. like they're really the kind of only two movies that he's like the like a, the main attraction in but whenever you have someone like that who is in you know this movie is high profile enough I suppose it was actually a fairly modest hit at the time. But he reminds me of someone like a Stephen Bauer, right? Where you're like, well, why wasn't this guy like a bigger? Like, this guy seems like he could have been a leading man. He's good enough. He's, you know, got the handsome look. And I just always assume "Mm, maybe they were, like, difficult to work with or, you know, made some bad career calls along the way. Yeah, I know Jack Shoulder, um, you know, said he he did a rewrite on this film. Which, by the way, I actually really like Jack Shoulder. but, But I have no problem also saying this is by far leaps and bounds, I think, his best movie. Uh, I enjoyed mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street 2 a lot, but I think this movie is his best told story out of all the movies he, he kind of directed. But uh, Yeah, I would actually put Nightmare 2 third because I, I like Alone in the Dark a lot also. Yeah, you know, I I, I, can't, I don't even know if I've seen that, to be honest with you. But I know, I know what you're talking about. That was actually his first feature-length film, right? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he just kind of got stuck in B-movie hell after a while and just kind of did a lot of forgettable stuff. Which even mm-hmm. he kind of admits to, but uh, now he's retired and everything. Um, ret- retired from I, I don't know if he officially retired, but I say probably the mid two thousands, around two thousand three, two thousand four. He stopped making movies, and he was a I know he was a teacher for a while at college, and then things well, just, he Hollywood retired, right? It's right. That, you know, yeah. at a certain point, he was only making sci fi channel type movies, and then it was just like he then he's not getting hired for anything, and that's yeah. retirement. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure some of that had to do with ageism, and some of it had to do with. Uh, you know, just he hadn't had a good hit in a while, but uh, yeah, but yeah, he just retired from teaching. And I was, I think, I was reading like two years ago, but um, well, no, because I think you're right. I mean, I think it'd be easy like, to label him like a journeyman director, but I think there is there's too much style in this and in Nightmare Two to like say that. I think he actually had a pretty good eye for composition, and it's you know, there's some pretty clever stuff going on in this. And even though I'm not a huge fan of Nightmare Two, I think it's it's a very interesting film, and a lot of it is interesting because of the you know choices he clearly made. And I, I think this movie deserves a lot of credit because this is the first one I kind of remember. It has this kind of this wall-to-wall soundtrack of mostly, 
I wouldn't exactly say punk music, but kind of like new wave rock music with a little bit of punk. There's like three Concrete Blonde songs on the soundtrack. And uh, it's it's like, you know, they kind of imbue these uh, traits with the alien. The alien likes to steal Ferraris. He likes to like listen to like hard, you know, sometimes metal, sometimes just upbeat rock music. So it, it's kind of interesting, like watching this alien adapt to and find the things that, like you know, of human culture that he likes and whatnot. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to make sure. Like you said, there's there's other movies that are like this. It's very often, the the evil alien is just depicted as just wants to conquer Earth. Yeah. And I think what ultimately gives this movie its identity is the fact that this alien, like you said, is like really into heavy metal. And really, when it's taking over a human body, it just wants to raise hell, right? It doesn't even seem like it's not stealing money because it needs money for its plan. It's stealing money because stealing what's fun. It's it's fun to rob a bank. Right. It's fun to just go in a diner and be an asshole and play the boombox loud. We'll see in a moment he even tries to pick up human women. So apparently he's even just taken to like the, the thrills of sex, you know. So yeah. um, I just getting to know this alien as a character, you know, it's through the bodies of other people. It's it's a pretty fun villain, I think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just and here he's eating this diner and he's grossing everybody out because his body he's, he's eating like a big plate of food and his body's like making all this weird noise. Everybody's grossed out. Then he sees a Ferrari go by and he chases it down. I went up at this. Uh, I don't even think it's really a Ferrari dealership. It's more like exotic car dealership. But uh, yeah, it's just like to watch this alien creature because, like you said, like I always feel like a lot of alien movies become generic because they always have this like kind of I don't know generic ass plot. Like you said, it always want to take over or always want to reproduce nonstop. I get tired of that with alien shit. Um, but also on the flip side, too, I forgot to mention uh, Kyle MacLachlan. He even, you know, obviously uh, Michael Nury thinks he's uh, joking, but, uh, you know, he he drives this cool silver Porsche, which this was kind of like my dream car for mm-hmm. a long, long time, uh, mostly because of this movie. But um, but he he jokes that he stole it, and Michael Nury's like, yeah, hey, but he, like even even the the well, we don't even know that he's an alien. But if you're listening to this show, you know you you know this movie well enough to know that you know. <laughs> He's he's kind of drawn yeah. to some similar things as well, and he drives super fast. So he just doesn't have the uh, the kind of evil like you know personality to yeah. Invite. Like, and I, I we'll think, get some idea later. No, oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say. I, I guess the the best way to really describe the 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 villain alien is a hedonist. Yeah, and I was gonna say we'll we'll get the idea later that these are two aliens who have been chasing each other through the galaxy, right, and like popping into like different planets. And your guess, and I would actually, you know, it's. I'm like I'm pretty anti prequel in general, but this is like one of those cases where I almost wish there was like comic book prequels or something, right? To yeah. see what what these aliens were like on other planets and like how how did they adapt to other cultures and you know what were they like you know everywhere? Because I think I even think later we'll get like an indication. I, I, I wanted to ask you about this code. You're pretty sure like right that the the alien inside Kyle McLaughlin and the and the alien inside uh you know the the, the villainous alien they're like two races, right? Right. That's two, that, two different that's races. Right, so, yeah. And. Uh, yeah. I guess we should mention a. There was a. I don't really want to go. I don't want to call it terrible because I've never seen it. I own a sealed laser disc of it, but it, I've never watched it. But there is a, a direct-to-video sequel that. Tries oh, it is to, terrible. I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. It, it it tries to say that they're the that they're from the same planet, but that they the, the they evolve. Some turned into the the light being, and some turned into the alien. Yeah. Like I, I I don't like that at all. I've always you know thought from the way this film gives me the impression that they were two different races and i mean that just makes sense you know what i mean (laughs) yeah no and you're and you're making the right call not even bothering with the sequel which is too bad because the 
the, the central idea at the heart of the sequel is actually fairly decent. And I think you could have made a good sequel to this, but first of all, like Nuri not coming back is a, is a big mark against it. Um, but just and beyond that, it's pretty poorly directed and everything too. So, yeah. And it's just a bizarre thing of the little girl growing up to be a cop too. It just, just kind of reeks of unoriginality and just goofiness. I forgot to look this guy's name up, but this big kind of football player guy who plays a security guy at the car. Yeah, he's very familiar looking. Yeah, I know him from a bunch of movies, and I feel like he was always playing like a football player, like jock type of guy. You have some good stuff. Like I said, like mirrors like a little bit of the Terminator. How like the Terminator in the first movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's always, you know, you know, kind of saying phrases weirdly and people are reacting to him. I like how the alien talks here. I want this car. <laughs> and the guy's like, come on, get out of here. I want this car. <laughs> I, I like even how mechanically he pushes the guy. Yeah. It's, it's great, too, when he pulls out the gun and just shoots the guy point blank. I think this is a great, like, little kind of 80s satire. Maybe it was a satire. Maybe it was just was reality. But the guys in the two sleazy guys doing the, you know, the deal in the office to buy the car. The guy's just, like, shoving Coke at the other guy to, to do line yeah. after line. And I love the detail that he's got the Coke in, like, the trunk of a little toy car he keeps on his desk. I was going to say, I love that, too. And, like, I don't know how, you know, how how many watches through this movie uh, it took me to catch that. But when I see that, I crack up every time, man. Yeah. And, and, and like, uh, not so much the, the younger guy buying the car, but the older guy, too. He has such a recognizable voice to me, but I don't really, can't really place him from any other films. I always thought this was kind of awkwardly staged how Eddie, the security guy, like stumbles in mm-hmm. and, and and then uh, Miller comes in. But it, it's, it's a great cold-blooded touch that they give him the keys to the car he wants and he just still shoots both of them anyway. Yeah, and that's my, that's my maybe my, my favorite delivery of his when he says, thank you, goodbye, Bye. and shoots them both. <laughs> yeah. so that's great. Great. A uh, little bit sped up shot there of him pulling out of the traffic, but still love it. Do you find um, so you know I, we've talked before on the show about how I love like any um, movie that is actually filmed in New York in like the seventies or eighties. Mm-hmm. I just love New York as a uh, like old crappy New York as a backdrop. Um, L.A. not quite as much, but probably like second. Right? Do you just love yeah. watching old L.A. set movies yeah. from this time period? Like I think just off the top of my head, I think the the one that does L.A. the best, the way I like it, the way it looks, is uh, obviously to live and die in L.A. And, and honestly, yeah. I, I think this is probably my second favorite. I'm trying to think of anything off the top of my head, but I think those two, yeah. And I, I, I like the... Uh, and then also as somebody who actually like lived in L.A. for a few years, um, I think those two films kind of capture it of just like... Because L.A., like, uh, it's not all sunshine and beaches. It's, it's a lot of it is sunshine and... Uh, uh, alleyways and correct. Oh, the Terminator as well. Terminator also shows LA like really great mm-hmm. cinematically. But uh, yeah, it's just like LA is a place of, of like the sunshine, which everybody loves, but it's just everything's just harsh and bleached out. Like this scene's a little bit different because I think he's rolling like around like Wilshire Rodeo Drive. But in general, the whole rest of the, the places that they're going through in this movie just see, you know, the seedy old, there's so much like old building and just uh urban decay in in los angeles even to this day it's crazy (laughs) yeah the little uh the pointing at them is great 
And the taller girl there, because I was looking at the cast list, the taller girl there, I guess she didn't have that many credits because she, for her IMDb page, is actually that picture of her standing there on the sidewalk. <laughs> well, for this, for um, for this actor too, his IMDb picture, his IMDb picture is uh, him from this, I believe. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, you know, you always try not to uh, when you do these these shows, Trev. You try not to. Uh, you know, constantly point out shit that doesn't exist anymore. But I will say, like, I really miss just the days when, uh, you know, sometimes, like, these just character actors were just, you know, cast because either, like, the budget or whatever, like, they just cast them in and, like, they were they were just no-name actors, but they were great. Yeah. Like, I feel like I see a lot of no-name actors now that are passable, but I, it's very rare that I see one where, like, holy shit, that person's great, you know? Yeah, I think if this movie was made today, they'd have like they'd want to have like everybody the alien hops into be kind of a known commodity or something, and that's why it wouldn't be as interesting. And that's but that's why I think ultimately, like for us, right, like why horror, and then to a certain to a lesser extent, low budget sci-fi. Um, those are two genres that still to this day capitalize on kind of lesser known actors, right? Which is usually just because they have to because the budgets, but that really helps them because you're not constantly distracted by like, Oh, it's that big star or something. I agree. Now I've always, I've always for many years now, not forever, but for the last few years, I guess I always, you know, when everything was remake crazy, I was kind of surprised this movie never got a remake, but, um, yeah, for the fantasy remake in my head, uh, I'm not really sure who you would get to play Nuri's part. And there'd probably a lot of people you could get, honestly, but I think my dream casting for the Kyle MacLachlan part, I'm going to go with Robert Pattinson. Oh, that'd be good. Yeah. Yeah, I could see him really excelling in that role. Now, would you go? Would you want to go as as gimmicky and cute as to have Kyle MacLachlan himself play one of the old men that gets taken over by the alien? I probably wouldn't, just for the simple fact that I might try to pull that little trick to be like it's a remake that's really a sequel. Like I probably would keep like all the names separate. You know what I mean? Yeah. Possibly yeah. even set it in a different city if I could, um, because I, I could very easily see this this happening and like, you know, just kind of like if not being covered up, just like people not really believing what what you know, because it's a very small group of people who actually like buy into the alien like uh, you know thing that's going on here. Well, that's the thing about this blood. I remember is that, you know, the, at the end of this, it's like a lot of people see that it was an alien thing. And then that's kind of not what they talked about in the sequel. It's not like, oh, we know the existence of aliens now, you know. And remember, you've, you, you've worked on a famous case with an alien. Like, nobody talks about that. No, no, no. And it's kind of funny, too, because they still totally, like, waste Kyle McLaughlin. Like, like he's, he's kind of, like, half alive at the end, but... But yeah, like they're they're not like oh holy shit, they're just like fuck this guy. Here here we get a uh, by the way the old man Jonathan P Miller he uh he got the uh, card out of the one guy's wallet he he took the wallet of the guys he shot at the dealership, and I guess the guy buying the car um I can't remember was it the guy buying the car or the guy who sells the car but one of them was in the import business and he, he goes he looks at the card and goes to the warehouse and he finds out it was just like a whole front for a. Um, a gun running operation, which is that, right. which I, I kind of don't know why that alien would like make that connection and figure this out, but he clearly, you know, comes onto the stockpile of uh, weapons that he's been desiring. 
but here here we get the the scene of the old man's body dying and great i think great prosthetics of veins popping out and shit popping out and second again you'll you'll mm-hmm. see one of the alien tendrils start to come out of the arm and i always thought that was interesting even like way back when because it kind of seemed like the alien wasn't even really control of his own shit or maybe the maybe the what's your take on the tendril coming out of the the arm I mean, I always look at like the alien is in control. Like, right? It's not like it's not like it, it's influencing the person. It's pretty much it is the person yeah. now. But just the human body is such a, a weak host for it that it's kind of like you know, it's like when you have a leg spasm, right? Yeah. It's, that's like that for the alien, like its own tendril, like popping out. Yeah, it's like the, the the I guess the arm in this case was too weak to you know. But but like I mean, obviously they don't show anything like like that in the movie. But I've always kind of like fantasized too about it'd be cool if you could do in the remake somehow with you know obviously graphics and stuff you could actually show how it's like kind of sitting in probably like the chest and probably the 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 it kind of has like a snout kind of thing like i don't know antenna if you could see that going up in the brain and then the tendrils coming out controlling the the limbs i think that would be cool now this is not the most subtle um or like you know set up for something so we you know chekhov's gun this is chekhov's flamethrower it's pretty in your face and yeah you know, not since Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has it been more clear that a flamethrower will yeah. come into play later in the film. Yeah, I actually think uh, Quentin Tarantino was heavily influenced by this film with the flamethrower. <laughs> it, um, it, it's kind of curious. I've never heard him talk about this movie but in general. I don't hear Tarantino talk a whole lot about 80s and 90s flicks, but if he, he I'm pretty sure he must have seen this movie. I, I think he would probably well, like this movie. He's seen everything, and yeah, I, I think this would be up his alley. I like that sign that's on the bulletin board that says it's, it's National Pizza Week. Make friends with a pepperoni. I, you know, I just noticed that for the first time uh, last night or the other night when I watched that. Yeah, it, it's pretty cool. And then here, here you have because you know they're working the case so late. Uh, Michael Nury takes Kyle McLaughlin uh, back to his home, and this is where we start to kind of get the the feels for the, I think for the first time really as the audience that something's really not right with Kyle McLaughlin, that he's not just a, you know, cause the things he says, he clearly knows that, that the person they're chasing is an alien. Like, you know, the things he says, he says, you know, first it was this person and it was this person. And, and then like, you know, Nuri's kind of like in the dark, like, you know, you tell me they're all working together and it's like, but I mean, he knows what's going on, but I think I feel like this was the scene that we were really supposed to first kind of think for the first time that, um, that uh, Kyle McLaughlin himself was an alien because he really is uh, like uh, like the he hasn't gotten down the interpersonal human kind of relationships dynamics. Well, this is where we get to like what you said about I don't know if this comes from the original script or if this comes from Shoulders rewrites, but I agree with you. But then the movie actually is fairly clever in that I think it does a good double twist in a way where right when you start to think that right you're like wow he's acting so strange maybe he's not human, but then he gets like the little where he talks about his family being murdered. And for a moment, you can think like, oh, well, that's just why he's so weird, right? Yeah. Like, he's traumatized by that. But PTSD. Of course, yeah. yeah. But uh, this, is a, this is a good little character beat, but I think it's a good time to ask you, Trev, what, what's your history for this film? Uh, how, do you, how far do you come back from it? So I came to it later, actually. Um, I, I'm definitely someone who came to it after. I'm sure I came to it because of liking Kyle McLaughlin from, from you know, his work with Lynch. And I don't think I saw this till kind of like late 90s, actually. Nice. Um, 
I could be wrong, but it might have been maybe it's it's quite possible the first time I saw it was when I bought this DVD. And as I said, since it's a snapper case, obviously it was a, it was a very early DVD. Yeah. And I think it's one I bought just because I, I knew the reputation of the film. And I think I'd probably at that point seen bits and pieces of it on cable, but I never really sat down and watched the whole thing. Um, but then I, I saw it and I liked it a lot. Then I instantly sought the sequel out, regretted it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, you know, I, I was a huge fan of this of this movie, and I I like I didn't know about the sequel like at all till years later. Like I never yeah. saw it at the video store. Nothing. I never knew it existed. But yeah, I was I was myself. I was pretty much because I'm a little bit older than you. I was pretty much day one on this. Uh, this came out. I was uh, yeah, I was probably about ten years old. Um, and I and I distinctly remember too seeing it. Um, uh, and I just looked it up too to verify my memory. But I remember seeing it like a day or two before Halloween because I remember we had some family members co- come over. Halloween was on a Saturday that year, and um, this film came out in October in 1987 and uh, i just singularly remember because me and my dad were we had went and seen it we were so blown away by it you know like like i think the terminator and this were like some of the early movies that just really just blew me away in a theater and i remember my dad mm-hmm. talking to uh uh one of my cousin's husbands uh just describing the movie because it wasn't like a real like i don't know like super publicized i don't think many new line movies were but it wasn't like advertised out the ass you know what i mean yeah Get some awkward uh, beer drinking here from Kyle McLaughlin. <laughs> Everything like about the wife, like her outfit, her hair is yeah. very 1987. Very. And it's kind of funny too because it's like, um, I mean, this movie came out in 87, so they probably shot it at 86. But it's weird. Like, I, I don't know if you like get this feeling too, Trev, but like. You can you can tell a huge difference between like a movie say from like 1982 or 83 and then a movie from like 87 or 88 like yeah just like you know the the 80s gets kind of like lumped together as being this one big day glow joke of a thing but there really was a few different uh not just in terms of fashion and music and stuff but also in terms of filmmaking style uh there 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 kind of was like you know a big different feel and um I think you could kind of see the, um, the, uh, what do you call it? Like the transition from the kind of like wild and crazy early eighties movies where like not a lot of stuff, they were fun, but not a lot of stuff made sense to where like going towards like the late eighties, early nineties, I think things started getting a little bit more like, you know, gritty and serious and trying to be more logical, you know, mm-hmm. especially with genre movies, I think I would say. I mean, it's not it's not uh, you know on the caliber of, of of this movie, but like, I think I think it's like, it it's, it kind of kind of makes sense. Like when you see the the movies that New Line just in particular were making, like in the early to mid '80s, and then this, like just a few years before this, they were making stuff like Critters, and then they by this time they were making stuff like this. Yeah. Like, do you think Michael Nuri's career might have been a little uh, more prominent if Chris Sarandon didn't already exist? I think so. And, you know, it's kind of funny that you said that because, like, yeah, they kind of operate in the same space. I think Sarandon's like a I just little... think of how much he looks like him. You know, there's a moment there where he kind of gave like a nod um, to and it was just like in that moment, I was like, man, he looks a lot like Chris Sarandon. It's really weird because like that's like the only other person that I really would com- compare Michael Nuri to. 
And it's just so, I mean, obviously, yeah, a lot of it has to do with I've seen this movie probably 20, 30 times. But, yeah, like, if if this was the only thing you ever seen of Michael Nury, like, you would think, oh, this guy was, like, end up being a huge star. Because he, he, I think he's, like, one step away. Like, maybe this role doesn't really have the breathing room. But I think he's, like, kind of in that same space where Richard Gere was at the time. Mm-hmm. And, like... He doesn't play, like, a really sensitive or vulnerable character. Like, there definitely is, like, a whole, you know, buddy cop dynamic between him and McLaughlin. But he does a lot of little nuanced things. Just, I mean, this movie is great with the little nuances. Um, just with, like, the little looks and glances. Like, you know, it, it holds the scenes a lot of times. Uh, just the extra, like, half beat to, you know, make it not seem cardboard and generic. Now, I'd say, like, this movie, I was just saying, you know, there's a difference between early 80s and late 80s, where I think this is, like, this scene is kind of, like, the one exception. Like, this scene really reeks of, like, 1984 and 1985 <laughs> with the strip club, because, like, there was always a strip club scene. And, obviously, we got we got to mention the awesome Claudia Christian, but uh, there seems to be some prosthetics at work in this scene. I don't know if you ever noticed that track. Yeah, I noticed that, too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We should also point out this bartender is another one of those, like, just yeah. character, character actors you see from everything. But it would probably popularly be known for it. I believe his most famous role is uh, in Rescue Me, the uh, Dennis Leary firefighter show. Yep. He was, like, one of the main characters on that show. Yeah, I totally just looked him up last night, too, and I'm blanking on his name. But he always plays that kind of, like, almost... Jersey bartender yeah. kind of guy. Now Claudia Christensen, um, who is doing great work in this scene, uh, prosthetics or whatever. But uh, I believe most people would probably think of her primarily from Babylon Five. But for yeah. me, and I maybe you're with me, go because I know this is, this is a film you and I have talked about. I, I, it's one I know we both want to do on the show, and I think the thing that keeps stopping us is just the availability of it. But uh, I always think of Claudia Christensen from Hexed. Oh yeah, it's kind of like my my primary thought of her. Yeah uh the, yeah like i was kind of surprised because like when i when i looked her up uh just a while ago actually how much and like kind of how all over the place her career was uh she did a lot more work than i thought she did but like yeah like i said being 10 years old obviously this this performance she's given as a stripper it was a it was a little bit of a awakening for me like like i like at this point i think i think she was probably like the at that point in my life, I guess you should say, it was like the first time I saw like a really super sexy portrayal of, of, a, of a woman in a movie. I, I thought the most interesting thing I found out about her and looking her up the other day was uh, that in 2011, she created her own convention called ClaudiaCon UK. Wow. Which took place which took place in the United Kingdom on August 13th and 14th, 2011. I'm like, well, geez, I need to look more into that because I want to know what the hell it's like. I know. Like... Does she just do, like, every day of the thing? She does, like, a panel for, like, a different thing she was in? I love this bit where uh, McLaughlin's sleeping in the guest room or whatever. And, like, because he got so affected by, like, the two beers or whatever he had. And Nuri gives him some Alka-Seltzer and he tries to eat it like a pill. And then he tells him to put it mm-hmm. in the water. And then that will come back in a second when they go to the strip club. And Officer hands him some aspirin in water and then he dumps the aspirin in the water. This is actually like a good little scary moment. I mean, even, you know, obviously as the uh, as the audience, we know that there's an alien inside this guy. But you know, kind of th- like this could be totally almost like in a slasher movie. Uh, just this little moment of how she's telling this old man to get out of the dressing room and and whatnot, you know. And then he kind of like jumps towards her and grabs her. 
Because mm-hmm. that, that, that's a scary thing. Nobody really knows what's going on, you know, that these people have been infected with this alien. Um, it's a, it's, it's uh, so scary and it spreads so much because it's an uh, invisible enemy. Very, very hard to fight because you don't know it's there. It's invisible. Um, the the stripper walks right out, you know. And that dress was insane, too. <laughs> yeah, the backless dress with the thong. That was insane. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm still shocked. I mean, that's why I, like, miss the 80s. Because, I mean, I don't, personally, I don't find anything like that really that, like, uh, exploitive or anything. But I just love, like, the, uh, I don't know what you call it, the, the fashion. No, the, the, yeah, just the fashionable, like, you know, artistic expression. Now, am I crazy or is this, like, the white-suited pimp? It looks so much like David Pamer. But I looked it up and it's not. I can't That's what out. I thought the other night. I thought, yeah. I always thought That's it was crazy. him. That's Yeah, I always thought it was him. But, like, I looked up some pictures um, from that time. He he was in Night of the Creeps a little bit before this. And he his hair was, like, way different. He looked way younger. But what's weird is that looks more like David Pamer now. <laughs> But yeah, I can't figure out who that guy is. I looked at the crest. I guess he's uncredited. But who do you think these guys are that were hanging outside the strip club? Like they look like pimps to me. Do you think they're like drug dealers? Like who are they? Well, they're definitely like yeah. I mean, they're they're scumbags, right? Just by the fact that they hang on this street. Because so this is like you know we we're talking about like this is definitely more of like you know like the the red light district or whatever. We see it's all adult bookstores and tattoo shops. So um, I don't know. I, I'd like to know the backstory of these two guys for yeah. sure. The Grease ball, the Lamborghini jacket, and fake David Pamer, for sure. I know. But, it, yeah, there was a great bit earlier with the bartender and, like, uh, the old man. I like that scene where the old man is just bleeding all over the bar. He's like, hey, buddy, you all right? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just like, too, that the bartender is, like, pretty nonplussed by it, right? Like, yeah, working like, in that place, it's like, yeah, well, I see I see crazier stuff than this all the time. So. <laughs> There's a pint of blood on the bar top. <laughs> Yeah, here's here's the great callback with the he doesn't know what to do with the aspirin. Now here the alien has sex with the pimp, and I'm I'm assuming because there was a moment where like the alien, like or maybe it's coming up, not sure. Yeah, actually I think it's coming up here with the rear view mirror. But the alien is very like kind of intrigued about being in a woman's body now. Yeah, you notice that like in a in a, the, in a attractive woman too, I should say. Perhaps not surprising coming from the director of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, but you could argue this film is LGBTQ representation friendly. You know? It could be. It could be that subtext. Yeah. Maybe they'll make a documentary about this one, too. <laughs> Claudia Christian. <laughs> she'll, she'll be the new, uh, what's his name, Mark Patton. Yeah. It, it's like a weird song playing on the radio, too, where it's like the lyrics are, you don't make me feel like a woman anymore. Here, here's where she uh, she checks herself out. Kind of a fun scene. I mean, I think it would be seen now as like a lot more sleazier than it really is. But I think it's it's like an interesting beat that this alien, you know, would uh, be thinking this way. And unfortunately, this is the one time where the alien doesn't get to drive a Ferrari. Got to drive that little shitty pimp mobile, old Cutlass or whatever it is. Dang, why did Richard Brooks have to manhandle that uh, exotic dancer so much to get her to talk to Michael Nur? <laughs> now, what's your primary, when you think of Richard Brooks, what do you think of? Because I feel like I have a weird one. Because I know most people probably um, associate with him with Law & Order the most. But I for have, me, like my yeah. mind, 
usually goes to him as the villain in the Crow City of Angels. That's what I was gonna say. Where he, he's, okay. he he's uh at the end where he's got like the the duct tape uh, gloves <laughs> and he's he's trying yeah. to suck in the power of the crow and all that. But I mean, I'm on record as as like I unabashedly enjoy that movie. I think it's a. I actually I actually like Crow City of Angels. I think it's got kind of a little bit of a bum rap. But. I got a hot take because I love it, and I know it's not the story adaptation of the Crow comic book. It's just a movie story, or whatever. But to me, when I watch The Crow and then I watch The Crow 2, The Crow, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love The Crow and I love Brandon Lee, I mean, by all means, but I actually like The Crow 2 better because I feel like even though it's not a straight adaptation of the story, I feel like he gets kind of the spirit of the story more than the Brandon Lee version does. I, I definitely don't like it better, but I feel like I, uh, for all the like talk about how crappy it is, first of all, knowing like what a compromise movie it was and knowing like what the story is supposed to be makes me appreciate it more. But also I just think like it's very beautiful visually. And I think it's a shame that it's one of those cases where it was such a nightmare, like, you know, thought like making everything that Tim Pope kind of like never directed again. And that's, yeah, that's yeah, too like, bad. Like I was, I was honestly, cause I was kind of like rolling my eyes when they started making it and the trailers and whatever, but I got into it full force. I bought the soundtrack, which was really good. It had all those cover songs on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was into it. Um, I, I love the weirdness of like, you know, the Thomas Jane character and the Iggy Pop character, like the villains. I, I honestly thought the villains were kind of better in that one than they were in the original movie. Um, yeah. And I think Vincent Prez does a really nice job playing like a crazier version of that character, right? Yeah. Like when they allowed him to kind of go insane, I think he does really well. Yeah. Like, I don't know why, but like, uh, you know, in the original Crow movie, all of a sudden this become a Crow cast, but I can't help it. In the original Crow <laughs> movie, it's, you know, they kill his, his girlfriend. Quick pause here to talk about Claudia Christensen being awesome. The way she slinks out of the car mm-hmm. and like, the cops pulling her over and, uh, like she, they come out and they're like, "Oh, she's so hot!" And then, then, she, then she kind of whips her arm around and has that shotgun and totally like blows the shit out of their car. But um, they're totally taken off guard, as I probably I would be too. I would let my guard down too. But um, yeah, like, like, not that it's bad, but it just the way the story in the first crow, you know, of his girlfriend dying and him dying. Brandon Lee acts acts it out well, like especially the scenes where he's coming back from the grave and stuff. But like for some reason, I just connect more with the story in the second one, where Vincent Perez, mm-hmm. his son, I think his son's name Danny, uh, gets killed, and maybe a little bit unnecessary to to make the 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 female character the grown up version of the little girl from the Crow. I felt like that mm-hmm. was just to make the excuse so they could put the paint on them. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> but uh, but other than that, like I don't know, like I just I'm just more into the emotional, and unfortunately, it does re- reach that kind of generic conclusion where the villain's just trying to absorb the power of the crow and stuff. But I'd say for the first three fourths of it, like I I think it's actually somewhat of a you know a little bit of a underrated gem. Yeah, I agree. Now here we get the other big car chase of the, of the yeah. movie. So this is like you know the the opening one was the big action, scene, but this is this is pretty good in its own right. Yeah. And like you know, so we're looking like between these two scenes, I'm sure we're looking at you know sixty percent of the budget. I would think so too. I would think this one would probably be a little bit easier for them to pull off because it's at night and they probably you know, probably could just do this at three in the morning. Where yeah. you could you could tell with the amount of pedestrians that were on the earlier chase that they were doing that like in the middle of the day, you know. Yeah. But yeah, like everything's good in this movie. Like, I I wasn't able to read. I, did you ever see what the budget was for this flick, Trev? 
Um, no. Uh, looks like the Wikipedia page only says like how much it made, but it doesn't yeah. have a budget. That, yeah, I can never find the budget. If I had to guesstimate, I'd say this is like a five, seven million dollar film. But uh, it looks like great. Like it easily, you know, even for that time, like it looks like it. It's like a twenty million dollar film. But um, but yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the again the cinema. I think just they had a great cinematographer. I think the editor was great. Shoulder did a good job. I think just one of those things. Sometimes the best production value is just having uh, competent people putting the movie together. But I mean, I just, I mean, I just can't stress like how perfect I think this movie like is shot and edited and the pace and the feel. And like the few times where you know the, the film. I wonder about the budget because it's listed as being like a modest hit for New Line at like nine point seven million. I think was the box office. Yeah, they say that's a modest hit, and I'm, but I'm guessing this is certainly the kind of movie that seems to me like it probably made a lot more once it hit video. And oh, I'm yeah, sure that's what so. led to them doing a straight-to-video sequel. You know. Yeah, this is this is probably the best moment of Buddy Cop Banner, where he's like. Uh, Nuri's like, I'll cover you. He's like, it's probably better if you don't, safer if you don't. He's like, mm-hmm. all right, I won't cover you. He's like, nah, I need you to cover me. Do you want me to cover you or not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, Maybe before that, during the chase, like the moment where he... Yeah, go ahead. When Trevor. he tells him to shoot out the tire, and he's like, yeah, I'm trying, and then McLaughlin just does it in like one shot. Yeah. And again, like it kind of goes back to like the Terminator feel to this of just the aliens being so and like not only be able to take a shitload of bullets and not die, but uh, just how like on point they are with their their you know their uh, fighting skills and murdering skills. Not really fighting because they don't really hand to hand fight, but shooting skills, I should say. I kind of I kind of miss that too. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love martial arts films and hand to hand combat films, but I kind of miss. Um, you know, I think probably the only exception we have nowadays is John Wick, but even that's taken to like almost like a, you know, over the top uh, gun food level. But I, I just miss the days when pretty much everything in an action movie was shooting guns and, and car chases. Kind of miss that. Yeah. I thought this was a great touch too, with um, just an eerie touch and good visually where they're uh, stalking the. Uh, the alien stripper uh, through uh, like a mannequin factory. Well, mannequins are always creepy. So yeah. um, if you want a scene to be creepy, yeah, just surround, surround it with naked mannequins. Yeah. Maybe it's just a maniac connection or something to me, but it could be. Some good, like nothing spectacular over the top, but just everything flows together. Good. The shootout here. They're totally just like racking her up with bullets too. She heads to the roof. I feel like every time I revisit this movie though, so this is a movie that I kind of don't watch that often, which is mm. cool because like, I feel like I revisit it every three or four years and I kind of forget about it. And it's yeah. you know, a, a nice surprise coming back. And I feel like every time I watch it, I'm kind of surprised by how short the alien is in Claudia Christensen. Like I'm surprised the movie didn't have that be like a more primary body for like a longer time. Yeah, because I, I know what you mean, because um, I've seen this movie a million times, but it there was a long gap in between there, um, where I didn't really see it on like like videotape that much. So this came out like 87, and I saw it, I think, a couple times on cable since then. Uh, and then, you know, the, the DVD came out like the late 90s. So there, there probably was like 
probably like seven years or so I didn't see this movie. And then when I resaw it again, you know, got the the DVD is good too. Um, the Blu-ray just came out like maybe two years ago. I would recommend either the DVD or the Blu-ray because I watch the DVD on big screen TVs a lot, and it still it holds up. It's one of those good transfers. But uh, I know exactly what you mean because yeah, this, this transfers. I was surprised the other night. Yeah, it's really good, and I think it even has like DTS sound if I'm remembering right. Um, but from like the first time you see this movie to like you know the next time you see it or like you said there when there's a gap of like when you see it you remember as Claudia Christensen being such a huge part of this movie but like you said screen wise mm-hmm. not so much you know I, like I, but yeah I, I was pleasant I, I actually I put I put this DVD in the oh go ahead sorry no, no go ahead Trev I put this DVD in the other night expecting it to look like hot garbage and i was mm-hmm. very pleasantly surprised by it. i was like because i was thinking i was wondering if like oh man am i gonna put this in am i gonna feel like i have to order the blue right now and actually I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm i think i'm fairly happy sticking with this for the moment yeah the, the blu-ray is nice but it's it's pretty much i i think the special features and everything it's pretty much a port of the dvd the dvd holds up real well and like for for terrible like dvd like recovers and stuff i actually like the the new artwork on the dvd cover um the blu-ray goes with the original poster which looks really nice I also have the laser disc I bought a couple years ago just for the artwork and what. But I was just going to say, I just had the thought run through my head, Trev. Like this whole kind of rooftop action scene and the way Claudia Christensen's going to end up taking a dive off this roof. It, I wonder if this was inspired by the, uh, who was a Joanna Cassidy scene in Blade Runner. It kind of reminds me of that. Perhaps. Like, like even kind of the style of clothes that she's wearing and whatnot. Like I always, this was really super memorable to me too. Trev is uh, at the end where like he's riddling with the bullets, and you know he brings out his little alien gun because that's the only thing that can kill the alien when it jumps bodies or whatever. But um, mm-hmm. I like the scene here, the voice she does, where where she tells him, you know, I'm not coming out yet. Just as it's like you just like I don't know, like this scene, like this part of the scene always stood out to me. Yeah, what do you think of the design of the little alien gun? You know, I always thought it was, like, a little weird, but, like, the more I, like, look at it, I kind of like it because I like how, like, kind of ergodynamic it is, the way it has the spot. And I'm kind of surprised that such an old movie would kind of think this through. But I always like the color. It's chrome. Uh, I like how it has the spot for, like, his thumb to go through and then the way his mm-hmm. fingers wrap around it. Like, I thought that was pretty cool. Like, it it it, it just looks like a solid object, like a little, like, wedge thing. It it's not, doesn't really look like a gun with a barrel or anything. Michael Nury was dangling off the uh, ledge. McLaughlin saved him at time. I don't know why, but like speaking of like always getting something wrong, for some reason I always thought the lieutenant guy. I always thought he showed up like to the the crime scene here like in his pajamas because he shows up with his dog. But he's actually like in a full sweatsuit with a towel wrapped around his neck. Like yeah, like he came from the gym or something, right? Yeah, like this guy was doing a heavy duty workout at the gym at nine o'clock at night or whatever this is. With his dog, <laughs> yeah, with, with his dog, yeah. Uh, that always kind of made me a little sad too, as a kid seeing this movie, knowing that the uh, the dog got taken over by the alien. I mean, if you can survive the uh, the dog carnage and the thing, you know, then you're like you're you're prepped for the rest of your life watching sci-fi movies that do damage to dogs. I, just to bring it up, because uh, it's still on my mind. Um, <clears throat> 
sorry to clear my throat, but uh, there was some animal carnage in a in a movie um, the other night, Trev, that actually got under my skin. Um, it was actually in the the new newest version of Child's Play. Did you see that? I did. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't like uh, the way the cat was handled in that, and it kept being brought mm. up over and over. <laughs> It, it, it kind of, be honest, it kind of made me hate the movie even more than I was. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you because I did not like that movie and I was surprised at how many horror fans actually kind of were like, oh, no, it's actually really, really good. And I, I, oh, I disagree. I, Hard to disagree. I, I thought it was like watching a trauma movie and not in the good way, to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah. Pure, pure shit. And I just. I don't know. There, there was a lot of fans that were just like, and I'll, and I'll be honest, like I've watched them all various times and stuff, and I'm not that big of a Chucky guy. I, I like the original film the most, probably. And uh, yeah, it, it just was brutal. I mean, it. I didn't even go into the mindset because obviously I waited so long to see it. I just saw it on cable, so it wasn't like I was even comparing it to the original. But just as a movie, movie, just a movie to watch, it just, mm-hmm. it, it didn't, it, it wasn't reaching that entertainment. Like I thought the the way that's how they, I felt. Like yeah. It I just, saw a lot of people say like, "Well, no, if you just think of it as its own thing," and I was like, "No, even if even on that level, it fails." Mm-hmm. And the design of the doll was so terrible and stupid. Like. Yeah. But anyway, that's just just making it a robot too, which is so terrible. But um, yeah. So here here we get to the point where they they lost the track because they don't know how the alien jumped bodies. They didn't, you know, they didn't know that the dog, it just happened so quick. The dog ran up to the body before anybody could witness it or whatever. But, uh, I gotta say like normally the alien going into the dog might in most movies might be a, uh, jumping the shark type type moment. And they also arrest uh, McLaughlin cause like they realize he's not who he says he is or whatever. But anyway, Usually, I would think the alien jumping into a dog would be kind of a jumping the shark moment, but I have to admit, it's actually really well done in this movie, like the dog acting, everything, and like I love, I love the scene where uh, it's coming up in a second here, the next scene, but you see the lieutenant, you know, goes back home, and the dog is like sitting in front of a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I should say Michael Nuri, yeah. Uh, got shot in the in the arm i guess more in the shoulder and he's just like he's not going to the hospital he, he's just taking his tylenol and that's it well i brought up like the with the thing with the dog how much of this film do you think was inspired by the thing because you know yeah. it's kind of similar right the idea of not knowing who's the alien and who's not yeah so i, I wonder I, the, the element with the dog i've always felt like it was maybe like a, a nod to that or they, they at least felt like they had to go ahead because we'd already seen that kind of done in a similar movie right I, th- I think you're on to something there, but it's it's kind of ironic where the whole thing about the thing is like, like, who is it? Like, once you know the alien is, is in the movie, you know, once it comes out of Chris Mulkey, they pretty much always, like, straight on tell you who the alien is at that point. So it's, Yeah, it's kind of more about watching the characters who don't know. Right. right. And that's kind of interesting in its own right, too. Like, I would say that was the only thing that really bothered me watching this the other night. And it never really bothered me before, but just how fucking <laughs> much Nori shrugs off this bullet wound. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and like, later on they show him in bed at home, he's got, like, a tiny bandage on. Like, maybe, like, a two-inch bandage. I'm just like, even if the bullet went clean through, it's like, you know. And, and again, just give him more props, too. 
to uh, the human side of this, I love that he he finally gives a like a solid thank you to the like the kind of like nerdy cop who always dumps the work on here. Yeah, and I was gonna say like maybe you look this up and have it handy, but this even this guy like I feel like this is I could be wrong, but I feel like this is a guy that I've seen like like a face that was like popping up and other stuff around this time. Yeah, this was like one of the few guys I didn't look up, but I, I know what you mean. Like he's so familiar. Later on, when they go to the to the uh, jail, though, oh, it's it's Cameo City there. But yeah, and it's it's kind of an interesting point in the movie because like kind of all the energy gets sucked out of the movie here because like it almost feels like the movie's like over with now. Like like I mean, obviously you know because the movie's not ending; it's not over with. But it almost is like a uh, feeling here. Um, that the that the good guys actually have just lost. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now I'm always, I'm always a little confused. So like the, when that scene we just saw, they find out. You know, then we get this, the backstory of what body Kyle McLaughlin took over. Yeah. And they hand him this like what that looks like a mug shot, right? Like a mug shot of like a young Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah, it does. But then it's, it's strange because the insinuation is that the body he's in is actually like the friend of an FBI agent yeah. that they kind of went into the woods together and the FBI agent died and he took his identity. But I'm wondering why this FBI agent was hanging out with someone who would have had a mugshot like, on a camping trip together. Yeah, it was it was weird because it was um, I don't know, like like that definitely because because everywhere they go, they instantly ha- like get a photo like they kind of explain it with the older guy that they, you know, they get the f- photo for somehow his his hospital records have a you know recent photo of him, but everybody else, yeah, they're like even the stripper, they they have like an eight by ten like nearby that they're given, like they always have these like eight by ten photos. But yeah, yeah, I know exactly what I mean. It is kind of like a weird thing, but it, it's almost like a funny wrinkle too, because it's like you 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 think like this FBI agent would have been, um, well, you don't really know, but you think this FBI agent. The Kamala Lachlan's in person. You think he would have been on the hunt for the alien, but it's it, it seems like him and his friend like there was a forest fire, and maybe that was like they were tracking the alien yeah. or something. But th- just the fact that they add on the extra layer of like McLaughlin's body was really just the friend was like, well, I don't think he would bring his friend. Well, it almost seemed like they were victims of the alien or something. I'm not sure. It's just it's kind of weird. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely see like him getting away with the impersonation back then. You know, because like computers weren't widespread, you could you could make a phony ID and walk around or whatever, or right. a picture ID. But um, yeah, no, it's pretty low tech back then. If you don't believe that, just look at that burglary sign that's hanging in the police station. That's yeah. just a piece of wood that someone wrote burglary on with a blue marker. Yeah, um, did you happen to be a watcher of the of the show Deadwood, Trev? Oh yeah, I love Deadwood. Yeah, the the red haired nerdy cop we were talking about. He was in that for two years playing a guy named Leon. Okay, yep. As soon as you said that, and I'm like, yep, that's what it is. Yeah. He he's still working too. He was in the recent Harrison Ford Call of the Wild. Playing, mm. playing, Did he play the dog? No, he played the grocer, or the grocer, I mm. should say. I guess the guy who sells the groceries in the movie. Kind of sad that he's doing such small parts, but uh, yeah. Anyway, back to the, the task at hand here. I like I like this though, uh this scene where McLaughlin finally lays it all on the line. Um that it's an alien that they've been hunting. And I'm I'm kinda taken aback a little bit that Michael Nury like doesn't want to believe it. It's like when he's the one being like, you know, like we shot this zoned out stripper twenty times, blah blah blah. 
I think at this point I would be I would be like a little bit willing to believe. Yeah. Know. Well, you you'd want to, but like I want to believe, right? I'm an I'm an X Files fan, so it's true. Maybe because I've seen so many of these movies and TV shows, I feel like if I ever got in a situation like this, my my maybe my gut instinct would be to go like, yeah, let's just run with it. Yeah, Detective Beck here must be a relative of uh, Scully or something. <laughs> so skeptical. What a feeling, Michael. There. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, obviously, you couldn't do it now. But uh, yeah, like. The initial spree, because like the alien's been on like two or three bodies, I think, by the time this movie starts. The visible enemy that we can't track has been on the uh, the run here. Like, I, I think instead of doing that, like whatever bad sequel for video, they should have done the prequel, and then maybe yeah. had McLaughlin just do a cameo at the end. There's a lot of great. Right, this is definitely this is ripe for a remake for sure. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it, there's there's some good editing in this movie too because like like earlier in the movie when they're uh, the doctors are describing Jonathan Miller and they're saying like oh he um you know he's a law abiding citizen he would never do anything blah blah, blah. you know he never hurt anybody he he would never break the law I think is what the doctor says and then it instantly cuts to him in the record store stealing stuff. And then there was like a great shot there where like the conversation between uh, McLaughlin and Nuri and then it cuts to a close up of McLaughlin and then the, the jail bars like fly in his face. Like there's some good like scene to scene transitions like that in this way. Here, here's the tiny bandage I was talking about that Nuri has. You can barely even see it. Like wouldn't he be bleeding all over the sheets there? Like it's still a fresh wound. <laughs> yeah. And again, with the jumping shark, it, it kind of happened a few minutes ago, but the scene where the dog comes and, like, knocks out the lieutenant guy, I, I thought all that was, like, pretty, like, well choreographed with the dog jumping through the thing and all that. And uh, I wanted to bring this up, Trev, because I'm not sure if it's uh, on the DVD cover or not, but I just wanted to bring this up. I thought this was interesting. The original poster, have you ever seen the original poster where, like, half the the face is a... Ed, uh, Edo Ross's face and the other half. Yeah, I was actually going to say that's kind of my issue with that poster is it kind of give, tells you right off the bat that this guy is going to be one of the aliens later. You know. Yeah, yeah. But this is what it says, like in the corner. It says, "It's killed thirty-seven people, robbed six banks, two liquor stores, a record shop, and stole two Ferraris." Now the fun starts. It just took over a police station. So, like, what they're teasing, like the concept or like what's going to happen in this movie, like. Like what? Like we're pretty much like coming in the home stretch. We're pretty much going into like the third act here. Yeah, and that's also like not the cl- like the climax of the yeah. film is not like a police station siege. You know, it goes on uh, beyond this. Yeah, like the, that. Like there's a whole end sequence. You know, like this is maybe like well, I was gonna say the police station is like the last super large scale action scene, but that's not really true. There's still some action that goes on at the uh, rally, but um. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of lost here. Like when you just watch the movie, you, you, you go with it or whatever, and you don't think about it. But why would the alien come to the police station at this point? Does he know that Kyle? Mc, I mean, obviously he, they, they set up that he's coming there to kill Kyle McLaughlin. But 
It's like when the alien was in the dog, did he watch Kyle McLaughlin get arrested? Is that how he knew he would? Yeah, be maybe if they'd had like a little cutaway showing that, that would make more sense. But yeah, I don't know yeah. if we ever got that. Yeah. Yeah. We should point out that we we kind of went by it, and we'll see her again. But in, in terms of like cameos, um, this has one of our biggest scream queens nowadays in this, uh, Lynn Shea. Yeah, yeah, young Lynn Shay. Young, attractive yeah. Lynn Shay. Because she was the uh, sister of uh, Bob Shay, who produced this movie and produced all the New Line movies, I guess. I, I, Lynn Shay is like such a great story to me. You know, it's it's yeah. so cool that someone like that who's like you know, we you and know, i have often talked about how hollywood treats kind of older actors and it's it's great to see someone her age you know actually allowed to be the lead of a big successful horror franchise and then just get a lot of work in other horror films because you know all these young filmmakers look up to her and want to use her now and i just think it's really cool that she had this like real like kind of you know in the, in the 2000s like resurgence yeah, it's kind of funny because she almost, I mean, she definitely kind of got more on the radar when she was in uh, something about Mary. But really, like you said, like with the horror flicks in the last probably whatever it's been the 10 years since the first uh, Insidious came out. She's really like, yeah, her profile's gone up. Yeah. And uh, going to Cameo City here uh, just a second ago, it passed one of the, the, you know, uniform officers that got shot by the alien was... Uh, I think his name is Branscombe Richmond. He a lot of people know him as the mm-hmm. guy who played Bobby Six Killer on the Lorenzo Lama show Renegade. Mm-hmm. I always thought that was a fun cameo to possibly. Well, I guess not a cameo, more like he was just being an extra. I like this part too, where uh, Beck takes this guy's gun and like shoves him against the wall and tells him to go seal off the hallway or stay away. Again, uh, now we're gonna come to one of the best cameos. Oh yeah, in a moment. <laughs> yeah, but uh, again, the re- reminiscent of the Terminator here. Wouldn't you say, Trev? When the Terminator attacks the police station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Mary, it's funny because I, I don't think I've thought about it as much as you have. But now that yeah. you bring it up, it's like it's this film. Yeah, has a lot of like Terminator parallels. Yeah, like just like the the thing of the people getting shot nonstop, taking all the damage. Like I was totally on the trail of this being a. I guess in some ways a Terminator clone, but not really. Um, I don't know. I, I but it's like more fun than Terminator, right? Yeah. Like even though they're both sci-fi, it, it definitely is more outrageous. Yeah. I like this too, where he takes this moment to ask McLaughlin before he unleashes him from the cell. Uh, he asks him like, "Is is Masterson the real Masterson dead?" It, it, again, it just I think the thing that stops this movie from being, uh, you know, a trauma movie or whatever is. Uh, the, the little acting beats like they give beats for the actors to play and they playing well especially Nuri man it's such a shame he was apparently a cock but whatever he did his job <laughs> yep here it is prisoner hey what's going on show up in a second I like too how the uh, lieutenant just like comes in here and like none of these other guys they're just like screaming out stop that don't do that <laughs> He just totally blows open the jail with the doors with a grenade. Like that, like that was a good shot too. Like how uh, McLaughlin takes the bullet in the uh, ankle or or thought or calf, I should say. But they never really like play it off. Yeah. Like you know, like he never really comes back. He doesn't really limp around much. Like he's all walking around the senator's uh, whatever thing later, and they never notice that his legs bleeding. Now here we get the first kind of like like space talk between the two of them, you know, yeah. where they kind of 
our hero and our villain have a discussion about what's what happened on a planet before this. Yeah, he asked them, how did you find me? He said you left a angry partner for dead or whatever on the Altar. So I, I guess yeah. McLaughlin's alien name is uh, Al Hog. Like that's what the subtitle said. Altarians are a filthy people, so McLaughlin is an Altarian. I'm not sure what the bad guy is. I kind of like this tiny little moment. It only lasts for a second. Oh, Danny Trejo cameo. Hey, who are you supposed to be? And then he gets shot through the bars. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, obviously we know the story of Danny Trejo and how he got to be, you know, in films and doing bit parts and still doing bit parts, but like... Isn't it funny just the coincidence out of all the those guys in the cell that they could have got to do that? You know what I mean? They picked Danny Trejo. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love that shot. That's a great little moment when he gets shot in the head. Yeah. yeah. The spray that comes out of the corner of his forehead. When yeah. he gets shot in the head and the blood just sprays out and then the, the rocket launcher going off. And... Yeah. And did you know that Danny Trejo has a thing in his contract where if he plays a villain, he has to die? No. Is that like a moral thing? He doesn't want to... Like, he won't... He, yes, it is. Yeah, because of because of the time he spent in prison, he's not comfortable playing any villains that, like, win. So he, he said, I'll, I only play villains if, if I'm sure that my character will get his in the end. That's pretty cool. And here's, like, the only kind of, like, cheeseball thing is the, the, the whatever rotoscoped animation of the laser gun. Because, uh, you know, he's demonstrating on Nuri that it doesn't work on humans. Like, I always hate that, like, glowy <laughs> effect <laughs> when the energy yeah. beam hits him. I don't know. It's just cheesy. Well, I think the thing about it that bothers me is it it looks too much like what he ends up looking like later. It's exactly like, yeah. Yeah, it's weird. They should yeah. have at least made his uh, energy, like, blue or something. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say, too... Um, of course, like, we're supposed to believe they're different types of uh, aliens or whatever. But I always thought it'd be kind of cool, like, more hardcore if, uh, you know, because obviously they don't want the good alien to be this, the same type of nasty squid-like alien. But I think this movie would be so hardcore if at the end you just saw, like, a nasty giant squid come out of McLaughlin and go into uh, Michael Nury. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe making this, like, a slightly different color so you can just tell it's a different one, but... Here they um, they find the dead um, lieutenant, and they're trying to figure out. This kind of is like a thing-like moment, because this is the first time where you as the viewer, you don't know who is the alien. You think maybe the red high, red-headed guy is, because he's kneeling over the body. But then he tells them that uh, Ed O'Ross was just in there, and obviously uh, Michael Nury has that moment of like, oh, no, not my friend, you know? Mm-hmm. I think, too... Um, this movie has a, uh, I don't know what you would call it, but uh, has a great balance of like looking real, but like the lighting, like, I don't know, like it doesn't look really look like movie lighting no matter where they're at, you know what I mean? Like even just like the interior it has, um, station. I think you'll know what I mean when I say this. Like the look of it, it has a like a Larry Cohen look. Yeah, yeah. Where it's, it's, yeah, which just is that. Yeah, it's like that. It's like yeah, it's like that bright, real look that I think is uh, yeah. used a lot in horror and sci-fi. Only certain directors are willing to do that. Yeah, 
Like, like the majority of the movie actually mostly takes place during daytime. Yeah, it all has that look. So here we kind of get the thing because uh, it was previously set up with just like a little brief TV appearance. There's this guy. I can't remember. Is he a senator or a congressman? Um, yeah, he's running for some kind of or. He already is like a senator. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, but but he's he's he he hasn't officially announced his uh, whatever uh, candidacy. But a lot he's going to run for president. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people think he's going to run for president. He's having this big press conference in this uh, downtown LA. I don't know if it's a hotel or whatever it is, but uh, yeah, they expect him to uh, announce his candidacy for president. And the alien who's who's now in the body of the cop who's supposed to be on one of the security details. Yeah, Detective Willis, I said Ross's name. He was supposed to be there to be like one of the security detail guys, but he's actually going there because he does want to get inside of this guy. And finally, we have a little bit of motivation of the alien, you know, having kind of higher aspirations. You know, if, if he could run for uh, president. I always kind of wonder the validity of that, though, because obviously they talk about this guy, the senator, whoever he is, being a... Um, like a great talker, like giving great speeches, and I don't know if the alien could could pull that off. <laughs> yeah, this is also getting to. I mean, maybe at this, maybe when you're at this point in the movie, maybe they just accept, they just expect you to accept it and move on. But mm. for the the for the first thing in this movie that makes me like really kind of roll my eyes and be like, well, what are you talking about? Is the fact that there's this shootout happening in this hotel now, right? And like everyone's aware of it, and then they just after it's all kind of settled or they think so, they still go forward with like his speech in this place. Yeah. yeah like after all these people are that like, the like I'm dies pretty down. sure they would cancel. Yeah. Because like, like you have no way of knowing, uh, you know, if, if Ed Ross, it's also, it's an, it's an act of crime scene now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And also too, like this, this is really the, I mean, we've had these, you know, scenes before or whatever. Of like people taking a bunch of bullets, but to me this was always the scene like in the movie that really comes off as Terminator esque. The way Ed Ross is just taking bullet after bullet, shooting people and stuff. Mm-hmm. Which could you imagine how many squibs like one poor guy had to take during that day? <laughs> and I was thinking about that, but like I've never I've never had a squib on me. Yeah. Or when I see films like this that are about like impervious people or whatever, like how tough it is to have the squib go off on you and not react. Yeah, yeah. When you're trying to play somebody, at the end of the day, you do have an charge going off. Yeah, it's one thing if you're just playing it for real, the way like Nuri is, because he's a regular human and he gets hurt by it. But yeah, if you're just supposed to stand there with no reaction Mm -hmm. and you know, like you know, you're just waiting for the guy to press the button or whatever. Yeah. So Nuri pretty much uh, he ran out of bullets at the wrong time and took two in the gut from the alien. I don't know, I like this little moment of uh, McLaughlin holding his hand and whatnot. Then obviously Edo Ross. I, I like the detail too that he's starting to get pale from like bleeding out so much. Like he looks cool here. But he goes in. I always thought this was interesting too because uh, the senator hides Lin Shay in like this closet and like she's looking out through the slats. So even though like they don't explicitly show it, like you know she sees the senator being overtaken by the alien. And she does like look like a little weirded out, but I I just was always like curious like why she didn't say like more or whatever. She does a good job of being scared here in the mm-hmm. closet. I guess she's just like you know what I'm gonna 
president thing, even if he's an alien. <laughs> yeah, he'll take me to the top. <laughs> even the slimy squid fucker came out. I think, you know, the the movie business, like, you know, evolving into the way it has, becoming a much bigger business. I think I really miss these, like, and New Line really was the one who brought it to me the most. Uh, uh, just these these little, I don't know, B-movies, genre pictures, whatever. And it, there's definitely tons of genre pictures, like, made today, don't get me wrong, but... I don't know, like, they're, the newer ones, I think, are cut from, like, a different cloth than these older ones. I think these older ones had more of a, uh, I, I don't know what you say, like, a feel of, like, the 70s exploitation. I think a lot of the newer ones are more, de- like, that I see, that are more directly inspired from, like, the direct-to-video 90s movies. Mm-hmm. So this this is what the, he's Michael Nury's taken three bullets in the last twenty four hours. He's he's finally knocked out of commission. Now, what did you think about the whole? Um, oh yeah, Clue Go, Clue come back. Yeah. It just it just says that the department's uh, conducting an investigation. But what do you think about the way it winds up here with this final, you know? Well, I'm actually surprised that they don't, like like what you just said about how, I'm actually kind of surprised that they kind of tip out their hat to telling us it's the senator now. Like, you know, he, he does the little tongue thing to McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you could have played this moment to where you don't know if it's the senator or it's Lynn Shea, you know, and, and added like a little extra beat to it. Right. Um. In terms of like just a, a little bit of a climax, but I mean, it, this is the kind of where like the, the the obviously the big action climax is the is the Edo Ross scene, and now we just get like a fun little you know moment with McLaughlin here with the flamethrower. But uh, it's like the I don't know, to me moment. like the prime image of this film always is yeah the prime image of this movie is, always is McLaughlin with the flamethrower. I believe yeah. if I if my memory serves correctly, like the old VHS box for this, you know that was like the the primary picture on the back was McLaughlin with the flamethrower, and it's what I always think of when I think of this film. so and it's a good scene too, the build up the way he's running through the ballroom and like all the cops or the secret service guys whoever they are like all riddling him full of bullets and he's running in slow motion trying to get the flamethrower out of the duffel bag and all that. The elbow he gave the older cop in the gut kind of was a little iffy. But yeah, it's a great scene. And then the senator grabs Clue Gulliger's gun and is joining in the action, just riddling the shit out of McLaughlin with bullets. But he does get close enough to uh, let off the flame. I kind of like that head tilt, too, that the alien did. I know that's like a cliche like villain moment. But I kind of liked it because he's kind of like, he, like I think I don't think he clearly knew what like what the flamethrower was that he was pulling out. Great dummy too, don't you think? That's burning up. Yeah, I love this part where the the dummy's mouth opens up, almost Larry Cohen esque uh, stuff esque. Then the alien comes out. Thankfully, everybody's too distracted from the alien to see the McLaughlin's going to shoot him with the laser now. And I love when the when the alien blows up, Trev. It makes like that weird like Star Wars Tie Fighter sound of like, <laughs> then <it> explodes. 
great uh, animatronic there. I just kind of wish, like, if you wanted to get extra goofy there, I kind of wish the alien, like, the little slug thing said something before it died. Yeah, yeah. I, I could definitely see that happen. Now, here we have the emotional climax where Michael Nuri's on life support, <coughs> probably not going to make it. Kyle McLaughlin's also all shot up in the hospital. Um, I'm kind of curious, like... Like, what do you think McLaughlin's status is now? Did they arrest him after that? Or did they kind of be like, oh, we just got to wait and, you know, figure out what to do with this guy? Because he killed the senator, but the senator was, did have a giant squid alien inside of him. <laughs> I think you'd still have to arrest him. The general protocol on this would be, and this is the kind of guy I would have thought a sequel to get into, right, is like, you know, the government, like, kind of shutting this down coming in and denying, denying, you know, and like, you, if nothing else, he'd be a patsy. Yeah. I mean, I would assume the conference is being filmed, so you have a, you have on film, I don't know if you caught the, the slug, but you definitely caught him burning a presidential candidate to death with a flamethrower. The flamethrower, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, should, there was like a lot of reporters and shit. He's there. certainly allowed to walk around this hospital, like, yeah, like that's what I'm saying. He wasn't handcuffed to the bed, nothing. Yeah, Nuri's finally dying, and we have to assume this is. Uh, well, I don't know if the like the Kyle McLaughlin yellow light alien came to Earth as just yellow light, or if he was in a body before he took over the Kyle McLaughlin body and did this. But he's he's actually able to go into a. Whereas the other alien can go into a body, but if it's dying, he just he needs to get out. Like he can actually like resuscitate. Like he has that Ray Skywalker ability right here to resuscitate and bring life back. Yeah. And I have to say, like, because like they kind of play in the earlier scene when uh, he goes to uh, Nuri's house. They kind of play that the daughter, right? Like, she kind of knows something up is with Kyle McLaughlin. It's like that weird kind of genre movie psychic kid thing. And then when Kyle McLaughlin, yeah. uh, the alien, goes into Michael Nury, it seems like the little girl knows, like, something's different or whatever. Well, and that's why, like, you said the thing, so where I slightly disagree with you, and again, it's, 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 just, it's just botched in execution, but... You said you didn't like the idea of in a sequel of the daughter growing up to be a cop, but I think like the most interesting thing about the sequel and what, what I the reason I wish the sequel was good is the relationship between a daughter and a father who she's not realizing for years has not really been her father, right? Like that's right. a compelling idea. Um, it's just it's unfortunately a piece of crap movie. No, no, I I totally agree because I read the the summary and I was like, oh, that's like you know exploring that or whatever. But uh, then when it got to the point of like, well, you see the alien before he got blown up, he actually laid some eggs. I was like, ooh. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I can't get down with that. But it's just weird, too, that you like, you make it, because I want to say the sequel came out like on the video like five or six years later. And then you instantly jump like 20 years into the future. <laughs> Just to, just for the simple fact that you want to have the daughter be grown up now, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the little. And they also little. introduced like, they introduced like a new like good alien partner too, which felt like fairly unnecessary to me. I thought you could have just run it with the daughter and the and you know, yeah. this alien teamed up. Yeah, like uh, I think the new ones play with Raphael, Raphael Sabarge, and uh, mm-hmm. I think I think they even named his character McLaughlin in the movie, if I'm not mistaken. Somebody's name McLaughlin in the sequel. 
So it's kind of good, you know, kind of ends like the alien got killed, but unfortunately the hero kind of died too, but then he resuscitated. So it's a nice bittersweet ending because, you know, as we know, the real, you know, Detective Beck, Michael Norrie died. So I can definitely mm-hmm. live with that, that downbeat ending. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's interesting. Cause I don't, it's, it's tight. It's like one of those things where it's like, is it downbeat? You know, it's just, it's just strange enough that it almost like warrants discussion, which you don't often get from like B monster movies, yeah. right? Like it, you kind of don't know how to feel about it. And I actually think that's fairly admirable for a movie of like this type. Well, it's kind of funny too. Cause it's like, there's, there's an advantage for both parties. Like, you know, Michael Norrie, he, he died. Like there's that, that couldn't have been avoided. He got shot too many times. He died. But then it's kind of like, you know, cause they set up earlier that the McLaughlin character, um, he had lost his wife and daughter. So now he gets a new wife and daughter to take care of or whatever. But then the bittersweet thing is, like you said, this woman doesn't have a real husband anymore. This daughter, this little girl doesn't have a real father anymore. So like you, like you said, it it is kind of, you know, like kind of leaves you in a weird place and keeps you thinking. Mm -hmm. I just noticed in the credits that one of the, uh, it said agent Fowler is played by Ted white. Who's of course, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jason I, and yeah. Friday 13th part four. Yeah. Yeah. If I went through, I could probably like tell him apart. I kind of know what he looks like, but yeah, I saw that too. I thought that was interesting. So yeah, that's pretty much it for the hidden. Um, I'm glad we could hit this one. I mean, I honestly feel like this is one we should have done like two or three years ago. Cause it just, it just definitely a must list. If you're, if, you know, we mostly cover eighties and nineties flicks here. And, uh, it's one of those movies that I'm sure you agree, go it's just like, it's definitely found its cult following, but it bothers me that it's still not as big as I feel like it should be. Cause I feel like oh, I'm yeah. constantly talking to people who don't know about this movie. Yeah. Come on fucking fright rags. Get on it. Where are our hidden t- our $38 hidden t-shirts and hoodies that we should be buying right now? <laughs> <laughs> like I would totally buy one of like uh Chris Mulkey standing in front of the Lamborghini holding the, uh, the bags of money and the shotgun. <laughs> so yeah are you uh i know you're a few years younger than me trev but uh did you did you grow up on a steady diet of uh new line cinema b flicks yeah i mean you know like i don't know um if i was like tracking them all down but i mean you and i both grew up with like just the video store era in general so I mean, my primary genres to rent from were sci-fi and, and horror. So, I, I mean, I definitely, I, mean, I think I, at some point, my local video store, which was just like a four-minute walk from my house, I feel like I rented every horror movie on those shelves at, you know, at certain points. So, I, I kind of worked my way through the entire category. Um I don't know that I can, like, necessarily remember, like, and point out which ones were new line and which ones weren't. Um, I guess typically the ones when Shay popped up and <laughs> it's a pretty good sign, but yeah, like, like all through the eighties, it was like new line with the Freddie flicks and then just little things like this. And then the early nineties with shit like house party, like I was just seeing the shit out of new line things. And then like, even in the late nineties, like they had like the Chris Tucker flicks and the rush hours and stuff. And I don't know, man, like, I just think like, everything like, like, they probably are, like, for people that are, like, 20 years older than us and stuff, you know, like, Joe Dante or whatever, like, the way they look up to Roger Corman is kind of how I, like, admired New Line Cinema. Yeah, I feel like, because, you know, we've, we've, we've gotten really good documentaries, like, 
and about canon films and stuff. And I feel like we're kind of due for like a new line kind of documentary at this point. Oh, I think there's a, a, an entire generation that primarily thinks of new line. I mean, even though it's, you know, people will always call new line, the house that Freddie built and that kind of people just primarily think of that. But I also think there's an entire generation that just thinks of new line as like the Lord of the Rings company. Yeah. And uh, yeah, for, for sure they're around. People, but I always kind of tend to think maybe you do have like, I just give new line credit for being one of the first companies to really, um, understand what dvd could be oh yeah. those like new line platinum those platinum edition dvds were always great you know in terms of like really loading them up with extra features and, and even for something like you know like a movie like willard which was not yeah. a hit in the theater but they still packed that dvd with like special features i think new line was really interesting too that they were willing to take over genre things that um you know kind of had like run its course um at other places like they took over obviously jason they took over leatherface like they were willing to like you know oh like you know somebody else doesn't want this anymore like like i'm sure a lot of it had to do with the success they had with the nightmare on elm street and all that but like they were willing to like kind of resuscitate shit and keep it going for a few more years you know mm-hmm. so yeah yeah and like you said a lot of people think of um you know, when they think of New Line, they mostly think of Lord of the Rings. But ironically, that was actually the what caused the death of New Line. Pretty much was um, once uh, Time Warner was well, New Line was an independent thing. Then it was absorbed into the kind of like Time Warner, and then Time Warner was absorbed by AOL eventually. And the the AOL people, because they were just all bean counters, they looked at uh, you know the commitment that Bob Shea had very smartly given to lord of the rings i can't remember exactly what the figures were what it was like the reason they shot them all back to back to kind of save money but it was like something like 130 million for three films or something and they just look at that and said oh that's that's horrible they like they literally cleaned house and fired everybody out of new line oh you spent too much there's no way we'll make our money back and then like the whole kind of aol era of uh time warner ended up being so damn disastrous for many years like going like the only thing that was keeping anything going in that company was was lord of the rings ironically so these people got fired for making this huge investment and then it was like the only money maker that the studio had in the company really propped them up for years so very ironic and sad the story of new line cinema and you know the 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 time from when they I want to say maybe they sold to Ted Turner and then Ted Turner said to Warner, whatever them circumstances were, I just really wish there was a way that Bob Shea could have stayed independent. You know, I'm sure he needed the money or wanted the money, but I wish it could have, you know, and and, and the new line that exists now, like occasionally you'll see a a lower budget at Warner Brothers movie come out for the new line stamp, but I don't really understand like who's making it or (laughs) it's like a zombie new line. Wasn't like Shazam, like a new line film. And it was like, why, why? why? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, and, but I mean, one thing I do know for sure is like none of the original people that built New Line, they're all long gone and they've been gone for a long time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, very sad, but I'm I'm glad New Line existed to give us stuff like Nightmare on Elm Street and Critters and The Hidden House Party and all that kind of good shit. So, well, yeah, and even in the 90s, you know, they give us like, you know, things like um Seven and Oh, uh, yeah, Seven. Yeah. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies and like Yeah, yeah, um, Ninja Turtles, Boogie Nights, like like they were in a weird way, you know how like Disney is like buying up all these properties. New Line was kind of like one of the original ones where that would be like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll we'll you know we'll we'll absorb these properties or license them or whatever you know to bring this. Well, show. and for for me and like I you know I I think 
I like to often point out when we people talk about New Line, one thing that really gets forgotten about them is we probably have them to thank for Jackie Chan finally getting into America because yeah. they were the ones who did Rumble in the Bronx, which was yeah. the one that finally broke him here. Yeah. And they actually co-produced co that film with Golden Harvest. And so they were like, you know, he was trying for years to become a star here and had some failed things. And then they actually somehow figured it out because I remember being excited for Rumble in the Bronx coming out. And like, I felt like it had like a lot of marketing behind it. And it actually it was a, a big hit. And then, and then that's, that's, the, that's the moment where he finally got broken in the States, too. And, and new, I mean, especially more early on, but New Line didn't just do like genre trash. They did some stuff like I, I was surprised uh I the 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 first uh, Whit Stillman movie Metropolitan that was released by New Line like they released a lot of ethnic films too uh, Hispanic films whatever like they just were good at like like I would I would say in a lot of weird ways like they were kind of like the original Miramax like they balanced some of the kind of like a critically acclaimed quality movies with like the genre shit you know to keep them going so yeah man that's I think that's one of the saddest things uh, of my lifetime as a movie fan is watching New Line cinema disintegrate but. Fortunately, nothing lasts forever, Trev. Yeah. So anyway, what what do you what have you been up to in the world of podcasting besides uh, showing up here on the movie graveyard? Um, so I still have my uh, my regular X Men podcast. So if people want to hear me and my buddy Joe just uh, you know talk about all things X Men, uh, we hit on the the movies, the the comics, the video games, the cartoons, and kind of everything in between. That's a Days of Future podcast. So we put out about two episodes a month. Um, you know, we've been kind of, we thought we'd be doing our new Mutants episode this month. Oh, but well, <laughs> the, the, episode we've been, the episode we've been teasing for years now, but yep. someday, someday we'll get to it. Someday. I feel like you need, you need more uh, uh, pots in the podcasting uh, fire, Trev. I, I, I think... I, th- I think you you should have more going on. I remember you had an empire at one time. You had if it bleeds, we can kill it. You had the X Men show. I feel I, f- I feel like you need something else. Are are you in? Yeah, well, maybe maybe, maybe I shouldn't say this because nothing's official yet. Okay. But uh, give us there's a been some t- there's been some talk, and I don't like I said. There's no we haven't officially planned this or anything yet. But there's been Bird and I, so the Bird who's a frequent guest in the show as well, and is the so Bird and I used to do if it bleeds, we can kill it. We've started to have early discussions about maybe bringing that back as a monthly show and mm. primarily having every month's episode be concentrated on a different filmmaker or a different franchise and just kind of doing like full like retrospective episodes. So I think if it comes back, if it does come back, that's the format it'll come back in. I think that would be some good shit. And I think a lot of the listeners of the movie graveyard would enjoy that. So everybody thanks for always being uh you know consistent with listening to the show uh just like the whole mission of this show to shine light on these forgotten flicks i believe me it makes me smile when i look at the download numbers and i see how many people are interested in these same films that we are trev and uh if, if you guys like the show and like to help us out leave us uh like a rating on um apple Podcasts or anywhere else you can we really appreciate that helps get our name out there and also too um if there's a place uh, any of the places you go that will like let you type shit in i love to see a lot of the comments the that the reviews we've gotten over um at uh, apple trev because like a lot of people let us know what episodes they liked so that's that's kind of nice too to, and it's surprising too like we had one guy like the chocolate war another guy really enjoyed that we did class of 1984 trev so yeah leave us a yeah. review because i like i actually read them and i actually you know 
have kind of shifted the focus to try to like you know get into these more obscure gems because that's what the listeners seem to like more so yeah and i'd also say maybe recommend movies to us that maybe yeah. we because like i know every time we decide to do another one of these half the battles us figuring something out so maybe tell us some movies yeah. you'd like us to do and then we can look them over and think about which ones actually appeal to us so yeah that we that we actually have something to say about so we appreciate all the <laughs> feedback you guys can give us on those reviews trev again i want to thank you for not only joining me but uh for uh coming through and suggesting that we we do one of my favorite movies all probably one this movie for sure is in my top 10 possibly my top five so this was a real treat and a gift i appreciate that from you man cool yeah thanks for having me back it's uh it's always it's always a good time so we should definitely not wait as long for the next one i agree man like time flies but yeah last one we did is christmas evil we'll have to not go whatever it's been four months in between so welcome back to the show in 2020 we'll have you on again soon everybody else thanks a lot for all the support and we'll catch me and trev or somebody else we'll catch you next time in the movie graveyard you're listening to the electronic media collective podcast network yeah it's a mouthful for more great shows visit electronicmediacollective.com